0: Let's pray. Show us, Lord, what you'd have us see, uh, either again or for the very first time in this account from the Bible of the death of your Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this uh, reading from John 19 drops us right into the pressure cooker. Just as it gets ready really to blow. The pressure cooker is the governor's palace in Jerusalem. Um, and the people providing the pressure in this cooker are the a group of Jews headed by the chief priests and um, their officials and various supporters, and their passionately held position is articulated in verse 7. We have a law. And according to that law, he Jesus, that is, must die because he claimed to be the son of God. This terse statement simplifies a more complex history of conflict between these people and Jesus. But here and now, they have one goal, one demand. Crucify. Crucify him. Kill the liar, the deceiver, the blasphemer, the troublemaker. The one under pressure here is the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, governor of the province of Judea, visiting Jerusalem for the Passover, the high festival of the Jewish calendar, where Jewish feelings could get elevated and things could get tense. Now, our Pilate did not necessarily have a happy relationship with his Jewish um, subjects. The Jewish historian Josephus records another story about uh, Pilate's confrontation with some determined Jews. Um, Pilate uh, had Roman troops fly ensigns, banners, with Caesar's image upon them in Caesarea, the seat of the governor. Uh, this was not done by other governors in respect to Jewish sensitivities, but the Jews interceded, we read, with Pilate many days that he would remove the images. After enough days of this, Pilate got sick of it and had soldiers draw swords on the Jewish crowd that um, assembled to protest. And then the Jewish crowd, we read, laid their necks bare and said they would take their deaths very willingly, rather than that the wisdom of their laws should be transgressed. At this, Pilate backed down and removed the images of Caesar from the imperial banners. And so here again, in the case of Jesus, Pilate faces the determination of Jewish people utterly devoted to their law. We have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. The one standing in the midst of all this storm is Jesus of Nazareth. And Pilate struggles to know know, what to make of him. Our passage picks up halfway through the chief priest's effort to have Pilate order Jesus' crucifixion. And in an earlier interrogation in chapter 18 of John, Pilate has discovered that Jesus does lay claim to a kingdom, but a kingdom not of this world. And Pilate is not convinced that this is a crime. But he will flog the fool if he must put himself in this situation and see if that will satisfy the priest. And so verse 4 of John 19, Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. But this, well, it only inflames the crowd and, Pilate is thrown back onto the mystery of who Jesus is. He retreats inside to question Jesus again. Where do you come from? He asks Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate points to his power to try to force an answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate says. Don't you realise I have the power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus replies, so Pilate's not really relevant here, actually. He answers, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Despite this slightly dismissive answer from Jesus, Pilate is moved, for whatever reason, to set Jesus free. But he finds this is harder than he thought The Jewish leaders threatened to smear Pilate as disloyal to Caesar if he does this. The Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And so Pilate, in the end, backs down again and gives these furious Jews what they demand, namely an order for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now what does all this mean is it well just another example of the human desire to destroy those who break the laws we hold dear kill the one who says the things that should not be said you can imagine the tweets if there was twitter in this age jesus is way out of his lane jesus is corrupting our society think of our children Jesus is courting a following among those Galilean deplorables. His claims are problematic. He's unorthodox on the question of the Sabbath. Hey ho, he's got to go. There's no doubt this story is a very human story of religious and political and ideological and personal conflict. But there are indications as we read on that there is more going on than just that. And so here I'll pause and we will sing before we hear the next bit of John 19. Can I invite you to stand? Well with this uh, we have left the pressure cooker of the palace of the Roman governor and we're now in the meat grinder, the meat grinder of the Roman crucifixion machine. And one of the nasty turns of the handle of that machine is the disposing of the clothes of the one who has been crucified. We live in an age of cheap textiles. But before the Industrial Revolution, clothes were far more intensively handmade and therefore valuable. People left clothing to others in their wills. It was an important part of wedding gifts. It was stolen from public baths, if you were unlucky. It was reused and recycled till it was mere patches and rags. And even then, these patches and rags were sewn together by the centenari, the patch workers, who would make them into clothes again and round they would go. And so Jesus' clothes are not going to be buried with him. They're not going to be returned to his family. They are the perks, the spoils of the executioners. And these uh, soldiers cannot make four even divisions of these clothes and they don't wish to tear the undergarment, the seamless undergarment, because it can't be unstitched. And so they say, let's not tear it. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And John notes that this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This comment by the narrator about the fulfillment of Scripture introduces then this new sense, this new level or dimension to what is going on in this story, in, this, in these events. For it connects these events with the words that were understood to be given by the inspiration of God. The scripture quoted is from Psalm 22, verse 18. And in context, uh, let me read to you that verse plus the preceding ones. Uh, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now, this psalm is a psalm of David, it says, uh, and therefore comes from about a thousand years before Christ. Uh, And since David was the anointed king of Israel, the king of the Jews. Uh, He was the Messiah. That's a, a title that means the anointed one, the king. He was the Christ. It's the same title in a different language. Since David, the writer of this psalm, was, in this important way, the Messiah, we are to take the words of this psalm as a prophetic expression of the experience of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of the Jews, the Son of God. The Gospel of Mark reports that Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these words uh, which Jesus took upon his lips are, in fact, the opening words of this very same psalm, Psalm 22, the words of the Messiah. By linking the crucifixion of Jesus with the words of Psalm 22, both Mark and John are signalling that Jesus is he's not just another victim of the cruelties, the random and terrible cruelties of history, but rather he is uh, who the sign says he is. He is the King of the Jews. No matter how mockingly or ironically this sign was put up, it does in fact point to the truth that he is underneath all of this apparent uh, Loss and defeat and misery and shame, he is the king of God's kingdom. Not a kingdom of this world, but a kingdom from another place, from God. So things are working then on more than one level here. Behind, alongside, above, within the human movements of God, Outrage at Jesus, of capitulation to pressure, of cruelty to a condemned man, of conflict and expediency, alongside these human movements. There is a divine movement. God is doing something here. He is fulfilling in Jesus a role and a destiny written about long before. In Psalm 22, things don't end actually with suffering and death but with a vindication of the sufferer and a celebration of what God has done Uh, let me read to you a couple of the closing verses of Psalm 22 he God has not despised or scorned the suffering of his afflicted one but has listened to his cry for help the poor will eat and be satisfied the rich of the earth will feast and worship all the ends of the earth Will remember and turn to the Lord. This is going somewhere good, according to the psalm. And even Jesus has said something about his coming death that suggests that it's not just to be ground up into meat for no purpose. He said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It may not seem like it, but this execution, this suffering, this death, this affliction is part of God's productive plan for his son. We'll reflect on that plan a little further after we hear the rest of our readings from John 19. But before we come to that, we go part three. Well, right at the end, Jesus comes alive. He's been pretty quiet through all this. He said little to Pilate and nothing to the crowds or the soldiers, but then he starts to act, to speak. Uh, At the end of the last section of the last reading, he directs his mother and a close disciple to care for each other as mother and son. And at the beginning of our final reading here, he calls for a drink and receives sour wine. And apparently he does this to round out his fulfilment of the scriptural role of the righteous sufferer. It says, so that scripture would be fulfilled, he calls out in his thirst. Maybe the scripture in the background here is Psalm 69, 21. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. So apart from these two acts of agency, the bequeathing of his mother and his disciple to one another, the calling for a drink, his final exercise of his own agency is to die, to lay down his life. When he had finished receiving the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus takes his death into his own hands in some way. As he said earlier in John 10, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus does this with a sense of mission accomplished. His last words are, it is finished. What is finished? The sponge full of wine vinegar, that's finished? Well, no. His sense of what is finished is wider than that. Knowing that everything had now been fulfilled. Knowing that his mission has been brought to its conclusion. That is when he dies. But what is the conclusion? What is the purpose? What is the mission which has been accomplished? There are a number of things that Jesus says about his mission that we might turn to that come earlier in John's Gospel to see how his crucifixion and death might accomplish what he came to do. Let's start with something John the Baptist said in John chapter one, verse 29, pointing to Jesus. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A lamb was an animal offered in sacrifice to God. And this was especially so at Passover and one role of sacrifice is to deal with sin, to deal with what separates us from God, to deal with all the ways we fall short and are flawed and do wrong and fail to do what is right, and all the ways we face giving an account to God for that and having to deal with the consequences of that. To offer a sacrifice is to acknowledge the debt we owe as sinners to God and to address that debt. By the shedding of blood, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' death is a self-offering sacrifice. As the words of our communion service put it, he is the one true sacrifice for sin. By which Jesus obtained an eternal deliverance for his people. Deliverance from God's judgment upon our sin. There's something else we could turn to, John 6, 51, to understand what is this mission that has been accomplished? What is this thing that is finished? Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He said, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. So on the cross, Jesus is giving his flesh. He is yielding up his body to death. For the life of the world, or we could talk about John three fourteen: the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. Let's round it out with a bit from Isaiah fifty three: the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity, the sin, the wrongdoing of us all. This is the divine mission that Jesus finishes; He becomes. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He becomes the one who gives his flesh for the life of the world. He becomes the one who is lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. To some, this comes as good news. They experience Jesus as living bread from heaven, as the one who opens up life. In a whole new dimension, life with God, burdens are lifted, fears dissolve, new peace is found. Hope and joy replace anxiety and hopelessness because we look to Jesus because he really has become the life-giving one for us. And hence the hymns, the hymns we sing. We've sung hymns from through the ages, which all express this joy, this wonderful appreciation for what Christ has done. From the 1100s, Bernard of Clairvaux, he's been translated, but what language shall I borrow to praise you, heavenly friend? Or from the 1700s, 1707, a a hymn we're yet to sing, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Or, the song we sang more recently, it was written far more recently, 2005. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This the power of the cross. This power lives and touches lives and changes them and causes people to write and sing songs. On the other hand, this message of a crucified king whose whose death is life and health and peace to us, that has always also seemed implausible to many. As St Paul wrote right back at the very beginning of the first century, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, perhaps God's call is reaching your heart. Perhaps Jesus is becoming more plausible to you, making more sense, appearing more attractive, promising more. What could be rest for your soul? If that's you, well, my call to action is this. Don't ignore that hint of a call from God. Don't put it off. Don't set it aside. Sit down and listen to it. Because there may be more truth and life in it, in this death of Jesus, than meets the eye. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on the finished work of Christ, the way he laid down his life to achieve for us new life, we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to the truth of this. Give us your spirit that it might touch us. It might encourage us. It might set us free, give us rest, put joy in our hearts because Christ has died for us and we know it. Not that that Christ has just died for us, that he, each of us might say, he has given his life for me and I have life in him. Give us, Lord, this gift, we pray in Jesus' name. Потому覺得